Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on January the 4th, 2015. I hope you're all recovering from your celebrations and you've got over the the rush of uh, buying presents and receiving presents and all of that commercial stuff which everyone goes through. And you're getting back to uh, the fact you're into a new year And uh, the new year is always is full of predictions from all the gurus out there Who follow memes and themes and so on Which is quite easy for them to do nowadays Especially the psychic ones that they get on certain shows Because the memes and the themes put it all out there for you uh, Over the last few things that have happened over the last few years uh, What's likely to happen It all comes from, from understanding and correlating them and so on so I guess awfully easy to, to be a, a, a sort of foreteller of the future today. What I do, of course, is different, and I go into uh, the big boys' agendas themselves from their own websites, etc. And it's so easy to find the information of where the world's to go because it's planned that way. All of the big changes which will affect you are planned that way by big committees, big think tanks, big global meetings, and they have hundreds every year uh, meetings, all different sections of the United Nations and so on, uh, along with the think tanks, the Brookings Institute and all the other ones. And um, and they help plan the future for a society, for the big global society, as they call it, eventually calling it the Great Society, etc. But um, those who are, who've been listening to the show for a long time are well aware of what's really going on, why things happen the way they do. And I often try to fill in uh, any news articles I read by uh, putting in the bits that are omitted. They love to admit things in the media, uh, and that's where when you're led up the garden path. If you only get part of a story, you'll never understand why it's happening, or perhaps even how urgent it happens to be, or important it happens to be, because they soften it by omission and so on, and they guide you to your conclusions and all of that kind of thing. I can tell you here in Canada, where I live in, in Ontario, in northern Ontario, it's uh, been awfully, awfully cold and down to about, uh, in the centigrade, about 30 below, quite a few different nights in the past week alone. And next week's to be much the same. Uh, and it doesn't really go above the freezing mark all day. So it's certainly here all right. And uh, I'm quite happy with it because it's supposed to be that way. But uh, all this nonsense and talk about global warming, it really tends to tick you off because it's a big, big social agenda for controlling the world and the way that you live, uh, right down to uh, what you even eat. It's all down to carbon taxes and the amount of uh, carbon taxes and energy taxes, they call it as well, and how much uh, energy was used to make that particular milk chocolate with the wrapper, how much the wrapper cost and energy to make and so on. And that gets all tacked onto the product which you purchase. And so the boys who traditionally make money out of nothing and even manage the money system, that's where they make money out of nothing, uh, basically are in control of this. They're really big, big boys at the top. And this is a beauty, this one, because now it's, it's, you're getting taxed really on your very existence, just for existing and for needing to eat and so on, uh, or, or warm yourself, you're going to get tax on it. Tax, 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 uh, which all leads to control. So we're well underway to all of this, of course, as you well know. And I, as I say, I, I, I must thank a lot of folk who've been in touch with me too, to keep me updated on how they're doing with their health and their families and, and all the rest of it, uh, because it's good to have an idea 
uh, people aren't just nameless faces to me. They're people, and it's important to hear how they're getting on and uh, what life's dealing out to them and if they're getting by or, or uh, having their, their good little moments and so on along with the bad little moments. And, because that's what life's all about, really, isn't it? So it's good to hear how people are doing. And so I thank people who are getting in touch and so on. Now, the carbon taxes are awfully important because they keep playing up this, this whole agenda. Every scientist is on board with, on the, uh, the panel on climate change at the United Nations is on an awfully, awfully high salary. The United Nations already gave them blanket immunity if they're caught lying because they have been caught before, you see. And um, why should scientists be lying, for instance? A lie is different from a mistake or, or a false assumption. Uh, a lie is when you know you're putting out a false uh, and contrived uh, assumption. Uh, a big, big difference here to get a political uh, end to it. There's maybe an increase in their salary as well. Because they paid awful good money for sitting on, sitting on boards and um, they've got nice clean hands. There's no calluses on them because they don't do any work. And they do computer modeling all the time and so on. They're on board with the whole, all the socialist and socialist, socialistic agendas for supposedly the redistribution of wealth, which has nothing to do about giving wealth to, to the poor folk. It's about putting your tax money of your country into third world countries to put the international factories into their countries for them to get cheap labor. We build the factories. That's what they mean by foreign aid. And lots of things like this are going on all the time. Most of life, in fact, to do from government today uh, via its big arm, the media, the regular media, is, is to con you. It's a con job to get you to go along with things, to give you a kind of uh, idea that the world's been run by great people, awfully honest people uh, who are better than you uh, in their honesty and decency and so on and have your best interests at heart. And nothing is further from the truth. There's no litmus test to get into these positions of power except by observation from outside. And that's to do with science, the science of studying the personalities for psychopathy. If there was a litmus test for that, I guarantee you, uh, every government would have uh, lots of vacant seats, probably all of them. In fact, all of the seats as well, because the psychopaths gravitate towards powerful positions. And there are degrees of psychopathy, remember. And don't forget that scientists depend on grants getting dished out to them to keep them going in a nice lifestyle. Uh, and again, the clean hands with no calluses. Uh, and all they have to do is churn out a paper maybe once or twice a year, make, even repeat it over and over, the same one and the money keeps rolling into them. So they're all on board with this great money maker of climate change, as they call it now, rather than just global warming. It's much better called climate change since that covers everything. And the, the, the warmer warming hasn't really been going along with their agenda. So uh, they actually wish, in fact, that they'd picked the, the original one that they had, which was uh, global cooling and an ice age coming. But they picked the wrong one, the wrong horse, and now we're back on global warming. But it doesn't matter if you're under 10 feet of snow. Uh, they'll still say it's global warming that's causing your 10 feet of snow. It's a quite an amazing world we live in. And that's how the world is really, really run, folks. You're, everyone's taught to be free, or that you are free, etc. But it, you really aren't free at all. There's, there's always been slavery in some form or another, as Charles Galton Darwin said. 
And of course, he helped. He's part of the big global society of scientists who helped work on creating a new, more sophisticated form of slavery, as he called it. Well, that means that you're going into austerity. Uh, You won't know you're going into austerity by force. You think it's all for the good of the planet or the good of this or the good of that. Uh, But really, it just attacks everything off of you. As I say, your very existence is taxed. Uh, so that um, you'll, you'll, they can make, they can force you to do everything, including what to eat and wear and everything else, and, and so on and so on. Now here's an article here from RT News from December 28th, and it said Russia has been, seen many harsh winters, but even here drivers don't welcome wintry roads. Heavy snow and hail turned part of a highway running from Moscow to Rostov into a parking lot. Cars were reportedly buried under snow upon stopping for just a minute. And it goes on about what happened there. And then you go further on, and they say that um, in Britain, here you have other things happening too, about motorways getting closed down and so on. And um, it's quite... It's it's against an ice age we're going into, isn't it? It's really like an ice age we're heading into, there's no doubt about it. And then we go into this one, and this is from... Uh, the 28th of December, it says Britain is unprepared for prolonged blackouts with increased death rates, rising public disorder and high-risk criminals on the loose among the likely consequences of major energy networks are seriously damaged. A, a secret, I love how they always say, a secret government security assessment has found, it's, from, it's, from the, it's in the newspaper, the Telegraph here. And it says, now they're always doing contingency plans for everything. Especially, see, government's first order of the day is, is, is its own survival. That's number one. And so they're always doing assessments and what can go wrong and then losing their power. That, that's standard. It has always been that way. But it says, UK's contingency plans for severe power cuts are based on numerous flawed or untested assumptions and need to be revised according to documents obtained by The Telegraph. The assessment codenamed Exercise Hopkinson examined what would happen if a severe storm knocked out crucial energy infrastructure in southwest England, plunging two million homes into darkness for up to two weeks. Transport networks would be paralysed and emergency services would struggle to cope. Fuel to run backup generators may be inaccessible and the dead may not be buried, it found. The assessment, which involved officials from all key departments and major industries, took part this summer following 12 months of preparation. So, as I say, they do this all the time, this kind of thing. And back in the 80s, when uh, they did it when Thatcher was in, to do with even a nuclear war, uh, what would happen. And out of that came the documentary and the movie called Threads, and so on. But they, they do look upon uh, breakdown in society, um, panic, uh, gangs arising, um, and going out on the pillage for food and so on, and all, all the th- things that could happen, all the disasters, things that could happen. Then this article here is from The Independent, uh, December uh, 28th too, and it says, Temperatures are set to plunge over the next 24 hours, with tonight forecast to be the coldest of the year, so far with lows down to minus 10 centigrade, and the likelihood of ice. The freezing climate caused by high pressure sweeping over from Iceland will hold the country in a bitterly cold snap until Wednesday with clear and crisp nights expected. Then they warn drivers for dangerous icy roads and so on. And people in the, in the uh, valley areas too will get down to minus 10 and so on. 
But um, it says tonight is expected to beat the record of the current coldest night of the year, which was two days ago on 26th of September in Braemar, Scotland, where Mercury hit uh, minus 8.5 centigrade. The rest of the UK is also likely to experience the lowest temperatures on record for 2014. It's, it's balmy to me that when you look at that kind of weather over there, because um, I, I can get minus 30 to 40, <laughs> and, and worse. And as his Met Officer uh, forecaster Simon Parrish said, the very low temperatures in Scotland indicate that it will be, definitely be the coldest night of the year so far. So it's, uh, it's global warming, you see. And then we have this article here, too, talking about what I was mentioning earlier, carbon credits. It's awfully important you follow this carbon credits because it's to bring all your spending money is eventually to go to taxes and fees and so on for, uh, for energy taxes and carbon taxes and so on. Uh, you won't see big bags of carbon getting collected or anything like that. It's all to be in your imagination and computer models, but it goes to the guys who own the right to take this carbon in. Uh, at least they're allowed to take all the money in from you, like the Rothschild Private Bank in Switzerland and and the guys that are associated with Al Gore and other ones too, who who uh, help push all this thing because they want all the loot for, for, for really doing nothing. Isn't that wonderful? It'll all come into you. And it says here that um, the final plan for running the carbon credit exchange that will open in January 2015 has been announced. And it says, uh, it says the credit market will be open from 10 a.m. until noon with bids limited to, to a range of 10% more to 10% less of the price of the close of trading the previous day. So the big corporations can trade their, cre- their credits too. It's wonderful for corporations, eh? Isn't it? It says, on December 9th, Korea Exchange announced it had finalized operation or operating regulations and other aspects of the system for the carbon credit exchange. The market will officially open January the 12th, 2015. 525 companies that are being allocated carbon credits will participate in the credit exchange market, along with the Korea Bank uh, Development Bank, the Industrial Bank of Korea, and the Korea Exim Bank. From 9 a.m. one hour before the market opens until it closes at 12 p.m., participants in the market will use a bid input program, which is similar to a home trading system, to submit bids that are uh, 10% to plus 10% of the base price. So isn't it amazing? It's just like all the other derivatives. And I was getting gambled up in this big pie in the sky, this big abstract thing that just gets juggled in the sky. And you pay up and pay up and pay up as the big corporations can buy and sell their credits. Not the carbon, mind you. After all, they can't collect carbon, so you've got money credits that represent carbon. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, it's better having a dollar sign than God we trust. At least you can trust in something. But, but I mean, you can imagine God, even though are not supposed to really try and picture God. You see, it's supposed to be prohibited. But you can't imagine a bag of nothing carbon. I mean, you just can't do it, can you? But you're supposed to, because these, these are, you know, professional people who dreamed all this, all this uh, chicanery up. It's quite something. It says, a carbon credit exchange is a method of allowing companies to buy and sell credits corresponding to the total amount of, of a country's carbon emissions. 
Currently, such exchanges are believed to be the most effective way to achieve goals for reducing carbon emissions. What a lie that is. What a lie that is, isn't it? The goal of the South Korean government is to reduce emissions to 70% of predicted greenhouse gas emission levels for 2020, with market operations divided into three phases. The system of credit allocation and penalties, secret penalties as well, has already been adjusted after industrial interest drew attention to problems with the carbon credit market. Allocations and penalties are the key to creating an active credit market since these provide an incentive for companies to participate in the market, but these rules were relaxed under pressure from big business. And remember too, all these corporations are gambling with the, the carbon credits. We're given the credits for free from all the governments, millions and millions of dollars worth to get it started. You won't be getting that for you because you're still going to bring in personal carbon credits now. That's where it's all go. Get you used to this idea, then it's your turn, you see. That's how you train animals, bit by bit, by bit, by bit, you see. Then you put the harness on. Now, how do these carbon credits work? Uh, at least how is it put across is, is, is actually working. And this is from Carbon Planet. And it, and it says here, this article is about all about it, you see. It goes into types of carbon credits, for, you know, for, for dummies. Essentially, the types of carbon credits can be split into two forms, those within the voluntary market and those within the compliance market. Each type of carbon credit adheres to a particular standard or certification. How can gas adhere to anything? Eh? Anyway, it says here, compliance with the carbon credits. I'll give you more information on the compliance market, and it gives you a link to where you find that. It's probably written by lawyers to totally bamboozle you. Certified Emission Reduction, CER units. The most common types of compliance credit is a CER, Certified Emission Reduction Unit, which originates from projects in developing countries. Certification and overall approval of these abatement projects and their credits is known as the Clean Development Mechanism. So the developing countries are the dirtiest countries, but you in another country can pay for the clean country, even though it's not clean at all, but you pay for the carbon they're putting out. Isn't that nice? Eh? You can share the pain. And it says, Emission Reduction Unit, an ERU. And it says, like CER in developing nations within developed nations, a mechanism known as Joint Implementation, or JI-1, produces compliance credits referred to as emission reduction units. New South Wales Greenhouse Gas Abatement Certification for Australia. That's called an NGAC. Uh, a New South Wales Greenhouse Abatement Certificate certification process is comprehensive. It includes Kyoto Protocol measures. Again, all these, these, these uh, you never get an invitation and go to the Kyoto Protocols or any of these protocols where they go and sign it deeper into and deeper and deeper in the mire. This but goes beyond the, those. In summary, the NGAC certificate process ensures the following that each NGAC represents one tonne of carbon dioxide stored for at least 100 years. But, but where are they storing it, or who's grabbing it? Eh? It isn't, you see. That the trees have been planted since 1990. That the trees weren't planted on old growth, growth forest cleared land, 
the, the, man, the land must have been clear prior to 1990, and that this, should the tree from which your carbon credit came come to any harm within a hundred years of your purchase, e.g. fire disease logging, that carbon credit will be replaced immediately from another source. So if you have to wait a hundred years for it and so on, uh, for any returns on this thing, uh, good luck to you folks. Hey? They've got you coming and going. Voluntary carbon credits. This is more information that voluntary market can be found to give you a link. The credit types below are just a sample of the most commonly used products in Australia and globally. Many more types exist overseas, and if you want more information on these, please contact us. Voluntary Carbon Unit, a VCU or Voluntary Carbon Standard, VCS credit. The VCS program provides a robust, I think these words, global standard for approval of credible voluntary carbon credits. Credible voluntary carbon credits. VCS credits or voluntary carbon units must be real. Like, unlike the other stuff, which isn't real, I suppose. Eh? The abatement must have occurred. They must be additional by going beyond business as usual activities. I guess everyone's dead. Right? Be measurable, permanent, not temporarily displace emissions. The findings need to be independently verified. All oh, big government bureaucracies just expanding like cancers across the planet here. And lawyers, eh? So... Verified and unique so they cannot be used more than once to offset emissions. The VCS is the most widely known and chosen standard in the voluntary market due to its Kyoto compatibility, as well as its ability to manage a wide range of project types and methodologies. What a lot of gobbledygook, eh? Now, what's the next one? Verified or voluntary emission reduction, VER. And gold standard there, I guess we've got bronze and all the rest of it all, maybe down to tin at the bottom, the personal ones, you'll have tin standards. The most popular type of carbon credit used to offset emissions around the world voluntarily is a VER, a verified or voluntary emission reduction unit. And there are many different types. Before CDM or JI1 projects deliver credits used for compliance purposes such as CERs and ERUs. <laughs> I can't believe you keep a straight face with this rubbish. Eh? They can produce VRs. These credits can be verified to a number of specific standards, including the gold standard. Not all projects go on to register within the CDM or JI1, uh, often due to the size of the project and the repetitive costs associated with compliance registration. That's just to register the thing and their bankrupt you. So the choice of one or more of these voluntary standards is made based on its overall viability and compat- compatibility to them. Then you've got a renewable energy certificate. An REC is not a carbon credit that represents one tonne of CO2 emissions, but rather a unit that relates to how much CO2 is saved by the adoption of renewable energy. I guess you can adopt it now, eh? And give it names, maybe. And how efficiently uh, one megawatt-hour of electricity can be produced. This can vary from as little as 500 kilos of CO2 to as much as almost two tons from older, less efficient power stations. Like carbon credits, an attempt to phase out and replace traditional emission-intensive activities, RECs provide financial subsidies for the power sector to help renewable energy projects become more viable around the world. 
Isn't this wonderful, eh? You get a whole new bunch of dictionaries. See, every department and everything we hear now needs a whole dictionary for itself, or a set of them, maybe. Because it's all, you know, the, 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 oh, I can remember what a movie, the movie The Devil's Advocate. And Al Pacino played the devil. And he says to, to this guy he's apprenticing, he says, how do you think we're taking this world over? We're doing it by... Every year, he says, the universities across the world churn out lawyers, thousands, millions of lawyers. He says, that's how we're taking the planet over, armies of them. And this is the rubbish they put out there. The, the word everything, you see. Wonderful, isn't it? Jobs for the boys, the little devils. In fact, you know, I think there's a little devil born every minute. I really do. There's never been such gainful employment for them. Because they can put their imaginations to work, dreaming up this kind of stuff all the time. And how to scam you and get rich and powerful over you by doing all the scamming. Not bad, eh? Not bad at all. And then have this one here. United Nations carbon credit supply to drop on climate vows. GDF sewers, it says from Business Week. Emission-cutting projects overseen by the United Nations will probably reduce supply of credits into international markets as developing nations set up alternative programs at home, according to the GDF Suez, uh, South Australia. China's uh, preliminary uh, plan for a a national greenhouse gas market published last week means projects will now be more inclined to use programs within their own country, said Philip Hauser, Vice President Carbon Markets at GDF Suez. Energy Latin America, a unit of the world's biggest utility. China's move may be befall by others in credits changing hands this week for 50 euro cents a metric ton. A metric ton that may rise to a few euros by 2020, said yesterday from Rio de Janeiro. An increased tendency to hold rather than sell carbon credits is underpinned by developing nations joining richer countries in accepting emission limits from, from 2020 under the UN process of tabling climate contributions through July next year. This, this scam of the United Nations, you know, it's not a country, remember. It's a corporation, a private one at that. And no citizen in the world outside the political leaders that all uh, committed treason by signing on to it. Uh, no citizen in the world has a chance to vote at it on anything. And you're supposed to run your lives for all the scam artists that really run it all together above the United Nations. Uh, it's quite something, isn't it? Quite something. And here's the next topic. See, everything is coming down to units. You see, you're a unit, you're a production unit. Remember that. Uh, you're, you're certified at birth that you actually are there, you know, you're there and, and that gives you the, the, the given name, etc. that they need in law to start taxing and everyone else and, and take you off to school and brainwash you, things like that. But um, you're a unit, a production unit. And the idea is that you end up going through the system, uh, working for as many years as you possibly can, paying taxes for government for all their big scam projects and things and huge paychecks. Uh, servants love to live better than masters always and um, and then hopefully the hope at the end you'll, you'll die quietly and quickly uh, rather than uh, the money that you put into to all the different medical insurances has to get used on you and therefore you see your productive life is over they want you to simply die we've got purpose you're a productive unit that's what your job is 
not to be happy and enjoy yourself, maybe get married or whatever. No, you're supposed to be a productive unit. That's, that's coming down to the brass tacks now, you see. And years and years, of the, the socialists began, began in early 1900s into the system, uh, uh, such as Ber- George Bernard Shaw, who said, when we rule, meaning the socialist system, the real socialist system, of what they think of as elite intelligentsia running the world, then you'll have to come to us, he said, and tell us why we should allow you to live. Because your whole purpose is to serve the system, to contribute to the system, right up to your last breath. And it's all here. They always blame Hitler for all. No, no, no. Hitler copied it from Britain and elsewhere, the whole eugenics program, you see. And I, and I say Britain, but I should really say London. London's the capital where everything, all, all the cancers start in Britain, all down through history. And then the international bankers and everything else. Everything from the money system, the bankers, is corrupt, including the whole, which means the whole system is, which is your whole reality, folks. And as you start to get ill, of course, they're prattling about the cost of, oh, keeping you in hospital, my God, you know. And because, you see, emotions went out the window in this age of moral relativity, etc. And it's down to brass tags, the cost per unit. Cost, that's you, cost per unit. What's your status in the community? What's your status in society? Why, why should they keep you alive, you, little old you, you see? And when you started off euthanasia, it was in Holland. Never mind Switzerland when you can go and get bumped off, but, but you can go to Holland, you see. And Holland has started to introduce it uh, for people there. And they always come out with, with things you can say, well, I guess maybe, you know, somebody who's really bad with cancer or whatever. And that's how they get all these things on the books. It doesn't matter what it is. And once it's on the books, they expand it and expand it. And I said at the time years ago on the air, literally, that eventually, uh, if you get a bit depressed, they'll be bumping you off for that. And, or just, oh, I'll get, I'm fed up, I'm going through a blues phase. Oh, well, don't worry, we'll kill you. How's, how's that, you know? And it's cheaper than treating you. So numbers of mentally ill patients killed by euthanasia in Holland trebles in the years doctors warn assisted suicide is out of control. Now, under the racial hygiene bill and the mental hygiene bill, it's true that the Nazis did go in and start killing everyone who had a mental illness, like a long-term mental illness, and in the hospitals, and those who were considered to be mentally subnormal, as they put it. And they got that term from Britain as well. But anyway, here's Holland moved into the area now of mentally ill patients getting bumped off now. It says 42 people with mental illnesses killed by lethal injection in Holland last year. This is three times more than the number who were euthanized in 2012. See, everything expands, see? Overall figures for assisted deaths show a 15% surge in a year. Doctors warn that the Dutch euthanasia experiment is out of control. And the UK assisted dying bill, which you keep pushing in Britain, to be discussed again in Parliament next month, it says. And that's from Daily Mail Online. And uh, so it says, the latest official figure revealed a 15% surge in number of euthanasia deaths from 4,188 cases in 2012 to 4,829 cases last year. 
and it gives you a little video and so on. This is the incremental rise is consistent with a 30% increase in 2012, 18% in 2011, 19% in 2010, and 13% in 2009. The rise is also like to confirm the fears of Dutch regulator Theo Boer, who told the Daily Mail that he expected to see his NASA cases smash the 6,000 barrier in 2014. Then it goes into this part, it says, Overall deaths by euthanasia, which officially account for 3% of all deaths in the Netherlands, have increased by 151% in just seven years. I wonder how much the doctors get for paying doing that too. Most cases, some 3,600 people involve cancer sufferers, but there are also 97 people who died at the hands of their doctors because they were suffering from dementia, the figures show. Now, once there's any dementia and mentally ill as such as it'll go across the board, oh, you've got schizophrenia, we can bump you off now, you know, um, and so on. The figures, however, do not include cases of so-called terminal sedation, where patients are given a cocktail of sedatives and narcotics before food and fluids are withdrawn. So, as his study suggested, if such deaths were added to the figure, uh, then euthanasia would account for one in eight, about 12.3% of all the deaths in the Netherlands. Dr. Peter Saunders of the Christian Medical Fellowship said the Dutch experiment proved that doctor-assisted death was impossible to effectively regulate. And it's euthanasia in the Netherlands is way out of control. The House of Lords calculated in 2005 with, with a Dutch-type law in Britain, we would be seeing over 13,000 cases of euthanasia per year, he continued. On the ba- Mind you, they never continue how many, they never mention how many thousands of families and old folk dying in their homes in Britain every winter. And I could go down to it as well, you know. On the basis of how Dutch euthanasia deaths have risen since, uh, this may be proved to be a gross underestimate. What we're seeing in the Netherlands is an incremental extension of the steady intentional escalation of numbers with a gradual widening of the categories of patients to be included. He said it was a similar pattern for increasing numbers of assisted suicide euthanasia in the U.S. state of Oregon and in Switzerland and in Belgium. The lessons are clear, said Saunders. Once you relax the law on euthanasia or assisted suicide, steady extension will follow as night follows day. And uh, so, so there you go. Now, a lot of the other NGOs that are pushing for it all, again, they give you nice little stories and so on. But they, they, remember, too, they also get big grants from some from different governmental departments and big pharma, too, and some of the big uh, medical insurance industries. If you really dig into things, folks, uh, nothing out there is, is what it claims it is or appears to be, especially when it's there to help you. You see. And then this one from the mail as well. It says, The country where death is now a lifestyle choice. A mum with ringing, ringing ears, ringing in her ears. Babies whose parents don't want them to suffer. They've all been allowed to die by assisted suicide in Holland. And it gives you different cases like Andrew Verhoeven planned to retire at 65 to travel the world with wife Dora. He was diagnosed with acute leukemia and was told there was no cure. He chose to end his life at 64 and died in January last year. And then this woman, Gaby Altheus, suffered 24-hour noise in her head like a train screeching. 
To end her suffering, she was given a lethal potion to drink at her home. She left behind two teenage children, a boy of 13, a girl aged 15. By the way, he's come out for a, with a new medication for that too. It's supposed to really change it dramatically. Anyway, that's what happens, eh? But it says, No one would have predicted that such a devoted husband and family would one day choose to die by a lethal injection administered by his own GP. Now, when your doctors are in the business of killing you folks, you better get your hackles and your hair standing up. You're really better. I mean, already, you know, if you're, it's like Ontario here. If you're in a hospital in Ontario, you're automatically down as a donor, whether you know it or not. And there are people making such money off organ transplants. And I know about some surgeons, by the way, who do this stuff. And they're sizing you up when you go in those hospitals for how much money you're worth. Dead. And now your GP is in the business now getting paid by the state or whatever uh, to bump you off as well. And then what they do with your body, a lot of them again were whisked off to, you know, bits and pieces, massive money involved in that. And it says that, uh, it gives you the story of the guy who, who uh, under Verhoeven and so on and so on. And they say, oh, his end was so peaceful, cars his daughter, uh, Bridge, 37, a writer. Once my father decided on euthanasia, he was relieved. He was looking forward to the day he would die. In the last few days, he was able to say goodbye to his family, friends, and talk about old times and so on. And this is the sort of thing they give you uh, to get you, well, well, you know, oh, well, etc. Do you understand with the medications they have, which they freely distribute amongst all the people on the streets or street drugs, uh, they can give you it in the hospitals. And all this nonsense, but they're afraid to get a patient addicted. If you've got a week to live, folks, who cares if they get addicted in the last week as they're dying? At least be pain-free. But that's the excuse they give, you know. But as I say, the government's made sure, you know, that, that all the heroin, which is processed and different stuff, ends up on the street in your country. That's why we protect the... The poppy fields in Afghanistan by the mil- our militaries. Anyway, it says here you might be entitled to think that what people do in Holland is their business and nothing to do with Britain, but you could be not be, not be more wrong if campaigners have the way the law would be changed here too to allow those who wish to end their life to do so at a time of their choosing. For opponents of euthanasia, it raises grave moral questions as well as concerns that unscrupulous relatives might take advantage of elderly family members whose estates, the cash part, of course, they might covet by encouraging them to end their lives. One of the most vociferous and courageous voices in the campaign to legalize assisted dying was Debbie Purdy, who passed away last week at the age of 51 after refusing food for a year. She said her hunger strike was painful and difficult, but that her life with progressive multiple sclerosis was unacceptable. And it goes on and on and on. And so they always get massive emotion into these things when there's much bigger, bigger things behind it all. Believe you me, there's big things behind this all. And believe you me, the UN too would love to see the amount of people not just not getting born, but also dying earlier. They've already said that. They've even had sci-fis out, but when your time came up for your productive life, they just walked into the little booth and got zapped. That was you gone. And it was put across as being very practical, you know, you know it's very logical and practical. And you're all dollars and cents, folks. That's what you are. And I can also remember, too, uh, 
that in Holland have already had mistakes made. Don't forget, hospitals are notorious for mistakes. You know, you're going to get one arm operated on, they cut the left one off or something, uh, and things like that. It does happen, folks. And there was a nun in Holland. Nuns couldn't put themselves down for to be terminated. It's against their religion, their whole vows and all the rest of it. But they've done it. In Holland. Now, I've always said government would be into every facet of your life. All you're doing your whole life long is being retrained and upgraded and retrained, you see. For those who own you and master you, you see. This is for years the government has been issuing guidelines about healthy eating choices. And it says now a panel that advises the agriculture department is ready to recommend that you be told not only what foods are better for your own health, but for the environment as well. So you have to start tying it all in together. That means that when the latest version of the government's dietary guidelines comes out, it may push even harder than it has in recent years for people to choose more fruits, vegetables, nuts, whole grains and other uh, plant-based foods at the expense of meat. Now, they've already come out and, and on radio. I've heard them on radio, which means they're obviously on TV doing the same thing. Uh, the beef and agri- agriculture industries are crying foul, saying an environmental agenda has no place in what has always been a practical blueprint for a healthy lifestyle. This article goes on to talk about what's good to eat and what isn't good to eat and so on for you, you see, the big agenda, the social environmental agenda is all part of it too. And it says here, once the recommendations are made, the Agriculture and Health and Human Services Department will craft the final dietary guidelines expected but a year from now. Published every five years, the guidelines are a basis for the USDA's My Plate. Well, eventually, My Plate will have nothing on it when they're finished, eh? And it's it's just the icon replaced the well-known food pyramid in 2010, and it's designed to help Americans with healthy eating. Guidelines will also be integrated into school lunch meals, patterns, and other federal eating programs. But that's not what the feds themselves will be eating, as always, you know, that's how it goes. And then, of course, the meat industry's uh, hammering back at them, etc., etc., etc. So it's a big social agenda, agenda underway. It encompasses everything you can touch, and uh, environment, pollution, you name any Every excuse I've got, climate change, yada, 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 sustainability, sustainability, and so on. All one big agenda, you see. And every part of it is, is, is part of it, for as far as they're concerned. Anything they haven't thought of yet, they will shortly, I'm sure. And um, this article here, but raw milk, it says that raw milk producers will be subject to tough new restrictions, making it harder to sell the product for human consumption, the Victorian government has said in Australia. Under the new regulations, dairy farmers producing milk must be either, either make it safe for human consumption or make it unpalatable by adding a bittering agent. It says raw milk producers will have to either treat the milk with a pasteurization process designed to make sure that any harmful bacteria are killed before there's a risk that the consumers will drink it, the, the Victorian Minister for Consumers Affairs, Jane Garrett, said. It says if they don't wish to go through this pasteurization process, they'll be required to add a very small drop of an agent that makes the milk entirely, entirely unpalatable. Entirely. In other words, you better just throw it down the sewer. 
This means that the smallest amount will make the individual recoil in horror, which will prevent absolutely deliberate or accidental consumption. Isn't that just disgusting? We're from the government and we're here to help you. Oh. So uh, there it goes, and, and so on and so on. Uh, and so even the ways that folk go around it before to try and get good, healthy uh, whole milk uh, will, will be, they, they can't use it. Like they were getting un- around it by saying it was for bath milk. It says, raw milk is sold in Victoria as bath milk and labelled not f- safe for human consumption. But on December 11th, Victoria's Chief Health Officer, Dr. Rosemary Lester, said she was concerned that cosmetic milk was being sold next to drinking milk and had written to Victorian Consumer Affairs about the issue. All these busybodies with nothing to do, eh? Maybe, I don't know if she's married or no, maybe we should, should get, who knows. And here's another one. School teachers forced to wear scarlet letter flu masks, gloves, and gloves when they refuse flu shots that don't even work. You understand, this is all behavior modification, folks. How you train the animals, step by step, what you eat and all the rest of it, how you live, by your public servants. And, and they'll say, well, lots, are con- lots of the public want this. No, they're talking about the NGOs that work for the big corporations that run the foundations that pay these, these NGOs. So it says here that um, the vaccine mafia is upping the states, the stakes in its endless war against free thinking and personal choice. A shocking new report indicates that some daycare workers in Texas are now being forced to wear face masks and gloves during the duration of flu season if they refuse to be injected with live viruses and mercury. Why not put a, 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 a star on their, on, their, on their tunic or something like they did in concentration camp? Why not do that? It's the same thing, folks. Same techniques. So setting a letter I received from a concerned daycare worker in the College Station area of Central Texas, uh, VacTruth.com, reports that at least one daycare center in the region, Covenant Presbyterian Children's Center, was impl- has implemented the, the egregious policy, which is akin to forcibly labeling all resistors with a giant scarlet letter in order to coerce compliance. The board of directors at the CPCC reportedly voted recently to require that all unvaccinated teachers and staff members wear face masks and gloves through the end of February, supposedly to prevent the spread of flu. But such a requirement is both unscientific and discriminatory, eliminating any option for dignified free choice. Employers should promote a stigma-free workplace, and making employees wear a mask and gloves while teaching isn't, is discriminatory and maintains the vague truth, and so on. And then it says here, CDC flu masks don't prevent influenza spread. Many hospitals across the nation have instituted similar unconstitutional policies, including hospitals in nearby Houston. And the funny thing about this is the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has stated that flu masks don't even work to prevent the spread of, spread of flu. It's nothing to do with that. It's, see, it's not even to do with the topic. It's, it's conditioning you to do what you're told. Prodding the animals, prodding the animals, you see. Coerce, coerce, coerce. Since no recommendation can be made at this time for mask use in the community by asymptomatic persons, including those at a high risk for complications, to prevent exposure to influenza, states the CDC in its website. And no studies have definitively shown that mask use by either infectious patients or healthcare personnel uh, prevents uh, influenza transmission. 
So, uh, again, why had animals taken it like this? Isn't it like animal farming should all kind of rebel? Huh? George Orwell's animal farm. Shouldn't you start rebelling, folks? And that's it. Get off our backs. Enough of this pseudo-psychology, socialism. It's way past the, the point of no return. And again, they admitted this year the three primary flus that they picked for the shots were the wrong ones. But you better get it anyway. should get it anyway. Why? If it's not going to work, what's the point? Well, they actually have stated they want to get it anyway to keep you in training for keeping getting it. That's why. <laughs> and then this article too, which is awfully interesting about the chip, you know, the chip and the skin implants and so on. And we know they started with the usual thing, oh, what's to help Parkinson's patients? Or, or folk with Alzheimer's that might wander off and, and so on to track and trace them and so on. But again, here's the other thing, the pill, the contraceptive pill. So scientists have invented an electronic chip that when slipped under the skin releases daily doses of contraceptive, freeing a woman from the need to remember to take the pill. Once in place, the postage stamp size device works for up to 16 years, roughly half a woman's reproductive life. In contrast, the various contraceptive implants that are already on the market only last for up to five years. And it's just final development that sounds like science fiction. The chip comes with a remote control that allows the woman to simply turn it off if she decides to try for a family. Well, guess who? We also have the remote control. We can turn it on or off. If they want to do it across a whole region, just turn them all, uh, turn them on, and no one conceives. Think about the power of all this, folks. We're here to help you. This is in contrast. Existing devices such as coils can be deactivated. Instead, they have to be removed. The process can be painful, and it's only done at clinics. So, this is a device which could be in the market by 2018 consists of a case containing the chip, a battery, and electronics for drug release and for wireless communication to the remote control. So, there you go, folks. What else can they put in there if they want to? Eh? Think about it. Look at the power you're handing for. But it's so convenient. You'll give up all freedoms for convenience, don't you? You've already done a lot of it. He goes on to talk about all the, all the scientific things of it to do with, you know, how it's made and so on, the technology, which you're supposed to be amazed at. And personally, it bores me to death. Technology these days gets so fed up with it all, to be honest. You know where it's all going. Uh, and uh, these little wells are there, each packed with a daily dose of Flavon Norgestrel, a hormone widely used in existing contraceptives. Each well is covered with an ultra-thin titanium and platinum seal that prevents the drug from being released until needed. At a pre-programmed release time, a small electric current melts the metal cap in a single well, releasing the contraceptive into the bloodstream. The remote control can be used to override the program when needed. And here's an interesting little thing here, right? The system's co-inventor is Robert Langer, one of the world's top scientists. His other achievements range from growing an ear on the back of a mouse, that's awfully helpful, that, to creating a spray that keeps frizzy hair at bay. There you go. What is this? What else is this chip going to do to you, hey? It says the chip can be adapted to dispense other medicines. See, there you go. And it's already been trialed in osteoporosis patients. They can trial this, mean it works. In trials on elderly women, it worked just as well as regular injections of the bone building drug, Triparadine. 
And uh, crucially, many said the device was so comfortable they often forgot it was there. I wonder if they often forget where the remote is. Says, however, much work remains to be done. It will have to be shown that an effective, it's an effective contraceptive, and crucially, the company must find a way of stopping hackers from taking control of the chip. <laughs> Everything used to be so easy, wasn't it? It really was. It was just common sense, and it was all so incredibly easy. And I'll tell you another thing too. You see, what the, this, this stuff, these chips were initially developed for, were to inject into people who were uh, convicts. Now, in today's society, anyone can be labelled a convict for a thousand different reasons, with all the new laws they're always throwing out there, or even antisocial behaviour, which can, can just mean talking back and things like that. And uh, as, as this, this is how they're going to create the whole section of the future. I say section because after that section, they'll simply clone uh, the populations that they need for the, the workers they actually will need. And it's just a step-by-step step process as we go along. So the chip is designed to be implanted just below the skin of the buttocks, the upper arm, or the stomach. It could be done in a 30-minute operation at the GP's surgery. Existing contraceptive implants are quicker to insert but don't last as long. I won't know, they won't know how much the chip will cost, but implants already in use cost 80 to £90, pounds, that's Britain, and last three to five years. So... There's progress for you folks. There's progress with the remote control and everything, and it can get hacked, and uh, and so of course the authorities can hack it too. Quite interesting, isn't it? Quite interesting what they're really up to. It just goes on and on, and you get so fed up with it, don't you? You get fed up with all the gizmos and technology, and and we've been trained to really go, wow, ooh, ah, you know, and, and just be in such awe of the state with all of its technology. And uh, an unfortunate lot of folk are. It's rather sad. It's rather sad indeed. Is she wondering? And just to finish off a couple of stories, this this article they always put these things out at the new year. You see the the, the memes for the year. And it says a, a former editor of the British Medical Journal has claimed that we should stop wasting billions trying to cure cancer, because it's the best way to die. He says. For all of you, I guess. You know. Dr. Richard Smith says it may be a romantic view, but cancer gives people a chance to say goodbye to their loved ones, which is denied to many who die from other conditions. Indeed, he argues that the country is wasting billions, again, on economics and economic units, trying to cure cancer because curing people of the disease means they're likely to die of worse things, such as dementia. But cancer specialists in charges dispute his incendiary comments. They said many cancer patients suffered terribly, I would not agree that was the best way to die. Uh, so uh, he, he prattles on and on. Again, the, the media just put these articles right in there. They're like handouts just to get the, the, the thought into your head, you see. Uh, remember the depopulation agenda and how are economic units. Then they want to take everything that you earn, basically, eventually everything you earn and use for their big projects for themselves at the top. So they also accused the doctor of being nihilistic about a disease which takes far too many people uh, far too young. Dr. Smith, 62, was editor of the British Medical Journal for 13 years till 2004. He's now chairman of the board directors of medical smartphone apps. Patients know best. Here's his views the nature of dying on a, a BMJ blog, he says. Leaving aside suicide, he said, there are four ways to die. Sudden death, a long, slow death of dementia, the up and down death of organ failure, and death from cancer, where you go down usually in weeks. 
He says most people tell him they would prefer a sudden death, but he thinks that's very hard in the families of the deceased. So he's only got the, th- the thoughts of the, those who are, who are going to survive in, in mind here. He says he's concerned about them. And he says that long, slow death from dementia may be the most awful as you're slowly erased, but then again, when death comes, it may be just a light kiss, he says. So, nigga through the, the, the death by other reasons and so on and so on and so on. But uh, it's all to do with economics, you see. Economics, again, according to your status and your social standing in the new society. That's really what it's all about, really, really there. And today I also put up a PDF, and it's um, quite an interesting little PDF, in fact. They've done studies on you. You see, they're always studying you. And this one here is to do with uh, attitudes, attitudes on, guess what? Influences on attitudes to a personal carbon trading system Down to you, the individual That's the whole idea of it eventually It's a complete alter the way that you live Why you live in fact Because they, they keep even saying why you must live and so on And it's done from North South West Australia And um, it goes into all the different studies they've done There are mixed attitudes to the effect of personal carbon trading uh, Can have on global warming and carbon emissions the NICHE, that's the N-I-C-H-E, Norfolk Island Carbon Health and Valuation Project. See, they test in small areas first. Everything is always tested in a small area for all of you to get done later on. Project has been developed to explore attitudes towards PCT. The researchers have designed the project to investigate links between health, obesity, and an individual's carbon footprint. The first stages of the project undertaken in 2012 involved development of point-of-sale applications personal carbon consumption website and collection of data to establish a baseline measuring key health indicators and attitudes to climate change and PCT. See if they're wrapping it all up into one, you see. Obesity, climate change, sustainability, carbon. This paper reports uh, the findings from a correlation analysis of the key variables from the baseline survey, correlation analysis was used to examine relationships amongst the variables. The significant relationships identified from the baseline survey will be re-examined in the later stage of the project during 2014. And um, they give you a rundown on the survey uh, of these uh, residents that they're using in this particular Norfolk Island. And they also find out what they object to. And then that'll go to think tanks to find the ways to get around the objections and how to con you in a better way to go along with it all. That's what it's all about, all this stuff. A whole new way of living, but nothing to do with the reasons they're giving you folks. Nothing. And the last thing I think of is your health, believe you me. Well, that's the start of the new year. It doesn't bore me because of uh, nothing surprises me since you're, you expect all if you follow them. And you know how, to, how they have to put it across up to you, step by step by step, and through gradual brainwashing and so on. So you always know what's coming because you understand what they're really getting at from the very get-go. And that's it from Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada. It's good night. And may your God or your God's go with you. <laughs>